Be seated. In this text from the book of Acts, we find two of the disciples, Peter and John, walking in Jerusalem, healing a man who had never been able to walk. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit after Jesus' untimely death and miraculous resurrection, it seems they're now able to perform miracles of their own. This healing was an act of compassion, one that was met with an act of aggression by the local authorities. As you'll see, they needlessly escalated the situation, creating an issue where there was none and completely blowing things out of proportion. This is a text about the ways in which some people, with even just a little power, can sometimes cross the line misuse their authority and hand down punishment a little too easily, a little too swiftly. But might does not make right, as we're about to see, and sometimes is just plain wrong. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, And the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all were, who are, were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them praised God for what had happened. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, creator of all things, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
There are some lines that you should never cross. Most of them are invisible to the naked eye until it's too late to go back. There are harsh words that can't be unsaid, hearts wounded, relationships broken. But again, these lines are invisible. Now, whatever you do, you should never, never, ever step over a line that's marked with bright yellow tape that reads, crime scene, do not cross. I've learned that the hard way, more often than I care to admit. Actually, that's a lie. I've never crossed a police line, but I thought it would be funny to say that I did. I heard a couple chuckles out there, which was very kind, but saying it out loud, it occurs to me that it really wasn't that funny after all. Uh, maybe if I had a, a clever story to go along with it, would have been good, but as a standalone throwaway line, I find it lacking. But what's done is done. The line has been crossed, and now I look foolish. And I can't take it back. You see how that works? Now, I've never tampered with a crime scene, but I woke up last week to find that the park across the street from my house had been cordoned off with that ominous yellow tape. There were a handful of police and firefighters milling about. Now, my wife was deeply concerned. Uh, she tends to assume the worst sometimes, and she worried aloud that maybe they'd found a body in the park. It wasn't outside the realm of possibility. There's been an unusual amount of crime uh, in our neighborhood lately, down south of Roosevelt Road, down in the mean streets of Soro. <laughs> just, uh, just a day earlier, the local police had issued a warning to stay indoors because someone had apparently tried to break into someone's house. And a week or so before that, someone robbed the Chase Bank uh, just a ways down the road. And in both cases, the culprits are still at large. Now, I didn't take my wife's theory about the crime scene in the park all that seriously at first. But after I got some coffee and returned to my uh, nosy vantage point at the window, I saw some men in uniform standing around a stretcher, a sheet draped over something on top of it. A chill ran down my spine as I contemplated what might lie beneath that crisp white sheet. Some crimes are so terrible that they demand punishment. But it occurs to me that some punishments are so terrible that they should also be considered a crime. I think it's safe to say that the Sadducees, for instance, overreacted and that they were in the wrong here, despite being uh, the authority in the situation. First, they reported Jesus to the Romans and got him killed because they didn't like what he had to say. The Sadducees, more than any other faction in first century Judaism, stood to benefit from maintaining the status quo. They were wealthy beneficiaries of the temple, its stewards and profiteers. They had a cozy relationship with the Romans. They had a good thing going. And Jesus' radical interpretations of Jewish law were a threat to their entire establishment. So they got rid of him. And now with Jesus out of the way, they've begun to turn their attention towards his disciples. 
Emboldened by Christ's resurrection, Peter and John have made it one of the key talking points in their street corner sermons. And moreover, they've begun performing miracles of their own. In this case, healing a man who had been lame since birth and giving him the strength to rise up and walk. We're told that the Sadducees were annoyed by this. So they had the two men arrested. It's a timely story after what happened last week in Philadelphia. I hate to pick on Starbucks again so soon. I just talked about them a few weeks ago, and you know, it's no secret that I'm a Dunkin' Donuts fan, but I just tell it like it is. That's what I'm called to do up here. Now, you probably all know by now about the two uh, black men who were arrested in Philadelphia in a Starbucks, uh, supposedly, I guess, for loitering. That is, uh, waiting for a friend to arrive before buying anything. That's what was going on there. Now, the manager freaked out uh, that these two gentlemen were, were waiting there without buying anything. And they, they called the police, uh, who hauled the two men out in handcuffs, despite the protests of other customers who saw the whole thing and thought this was completely outrageous. And it's become a national story, yet another example of the kind of absurd racism that people of color have to live with. Seems they're seldom given the benefit of the doubt. Now clearly, much like the Sadducees, the manager of that store overreacted. The punishment didn't fit the crime. Indeed, there was no crime. And like I said, you can make a, a pretty weak case for loitering, but is that what you call it when you go to a restaurant and sit down and you don't order anything until your friends arrive? Is that loitering? People have rightly said that this never would have happened if these guys were white. And that's true. I'll tell you something else. This never would have happened in Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> but it happened in Jerusalem. Sadducees had Peter and John arrested because they didn't like them. They didn't like the look of them. They didn't like what they were up to or what they thought they were up to. Peter and John didn't break any laws, but they got picked up anyway. And in both instances, it made the people who called the police look incredibly foolish. I love the way Peter turns this around on them, declaring his innocence and their collective guilt at the same time. If we are questioned today because of a good deed we did for someone who was sick, Peter declares, and let it be known that this man standing before you in good health is, uh, has been healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. This is made all the more awkward by the fact that the guy who was healed is standing right there throughout this whole conversation in the midst of this kangaroo court. However you look at it, the optics are pretty bad. The Sadducees would have been much better off if they just left Peter and John alone. But no, they had to get involved. They had to create a problem. And in the end, they had to let them go anyway without pressing charges. And it cost them a lot of credibility. You could say the same for Starbucks, in spite of their CEO's good intentions of making things right with apologies and racial bias training in over 8,000 stores. He seems to genuinely mean well in trying to right this wrong, but 
Regardless, people are still protesting in droves and shouting outside of their storefronts that Starbucks coffee is anti-black. Which is pretty clever, I have to say. No crime was committed that day. But even when laws are broken in this country, it occurs to me that the sentences are often too harsh. Some politicians push for strict laws and punishments because they want to be seen as being tough on crime, because they think it, it makes them more electable, you know? But, but these kinds of laws aren't good for anyone. Stop and frisk, so-called tough policy, plays into inherent racial bias and creates hostility towards police in the very communities where good relationships with law enforcement are the most important. The failed war on drugs with its mandatory minimum sentencing has ruined, completely ruined people's lives for as little as half an ounce of marijuana. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Actually, it's, it's worse than the crime itself. You know, what's worse, you know? Smoking a little doobie or locking someone in a box for 20 years. The punishment is worse than the crime. And our jails are full of people with minor offenses or even failure to pay legal debts that the poor can't afford, effectively leaving them in debtor's prison while taxpayers foot the bill. It's not good for anyone. Sometimes the biggest crime is perpetrated by the one who hands down the punishment. Now that said, as I preach this sermon, it occurs to me that I might still be a little upset about the speeding ticket I got last month. We've all got our bias to contend with. But punishment isn't just a matter of law and order. It's something we do to each other. Something we do to each other in passive aggressive or just plain aggressive ways. You know, we might punish our partners with silence when we're upset with them or when we don't get along. Or we might yell at our kids when they misbehave or write up employees when, you know, they don't dress appropriately at work or something. And it's a tricky thing because, you know, you don't want to employ punitive measures too liberally, as I've discussed, but there are times when it's necessary, right? Sometimes people need to be punished. Sometimes there need to be consequences. I, I know that. I understand that. But I don't like it. You know, I, uh, I tend to be a live and let live kind of guy, I think, more often than not. Uh, I think people make too big a deal out of things, take things a little too seriously. You know, I think they get too angry. It would really be better for everyone if they just let it go and move on with their lives. I would never make it in the Army uh, or the police academy or probably anywhere except maybe a hippie commune or a, a very gracious church. Now, even before I had kids of my own, I knew that this was going to be a problem when the time came, and I wasn't wrong. I have struggled mightily with knowing how and when to discipline my children. Now, the little one, Levi, he's pretty straightforward. He's two years old, uh, and you know he's a little bit of a bruiser. Uh, so, you know, when he hits me, I send him to his room for a few minutes, you know, right 
after I regain consciousness. <laughs> but Ethan, he's seven years old, and uh, he's a lot more complicated. He's a great kid. He's a hardworking first grader. He, he follows all the rules in school, never has a bad word to say about anyone. But at home, he's got this way of towing the line without ever actually doing anything wrong, per se. And he's usually super polite about it, too. So, for example, if I ask him to pick up his toys, he'll say, oh, I'm sorry, Dad, I, I guess I forgot to clean it up. I'll try to remember next time. And then he'll get up and walk away, leaving the mess <laughs> on the floor. When I tell him to brush his teeth or get dressed, you know, he'll pretend to ignore me, make me repeat myself 10 or 15 times. I'm sorry, Dad, he'll finally say, looking up from his pile of Legos. I thought you were talking to Mom. <laughs> and when he refuses to go to bed until I found some stuffed animal that no one's seen in six months, you know, and I tell him, we'll look for it tomorrow, he'll reply with something that he, you know, picked up during some motivational assembly at school. He'll say, you've got to have a growth mindset, Dad. You need to take the initiative. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm being gaslighted. Like, like, he makes me feel like I'm the one who's being unreasonable. I mean, how do you punish someone who's so gosh darn polite and sensible? Now, I don't think he's trying to be manipulative. He just, he just doesn't want to be bothered, you know, with things like chores or responsibility. Uh, but it's our job, you know, as his parents, my wife and I, to put our foot down, mostly her foot, uh, and to teach him how to be responsible. So a couple of weeks ago to that end, we let him get a couple of fish, uh, pet fish. Now you all know how this story goes, right? Kids and pets. I'll feed them every day, I promise. Well, of course, that hasn't really happened. And my wife has taken quite a shine to these two fish, by the way. She's told me that she loves them more than our cats we've had for 10 years uh, and you know she read somewhere that fish like to snack on peas you know that it's a, a little treat for them uh, if they're soft enough so she, she took the time and boiled up a single pea put it on a plate you know brought it up to the fish tank that's how much she loves these fish so naturally she doesn't want to see him go hungry so she reminds my son to feed the fish or you know she does it herself if he says he's too busy. I don't know how busy a seven-year-old is, but... Now, I've uh, always been a big believer of natural consequences, especially as a parent. Natural consequences as opposed to arbitrary punishments. I think that's what God does for us. I think God lets us deal with the fallout of our own mistakes. God lets us learn from them, uh, rather than just punishing sinners with eternal torment. But in this case, the natural consequence of not feeding the fish, of course, is to let them starve and die, which might be a little harsh for a seven-year-old to say nothing of the fish, didn't do nothing to anyone. It's a punishment that crosses the line. It's too much. A more appropriate measure, perhaps, would be to take the fish away, take them out of his room if he forgets to feed them, you know, a certain number of times. That's a very sensible measure, and that's what I'm going to do as soon as I work up the nerve. Um, 
Consequences are often necessary, but they should be instructive, you know, not strictly punitive. It should be about teaching someone the error of their ways rather than trying to just satisfy our anger or right some karmic imbalance. Christ, as always, provides the right model here. He wasn't a judge, a jury, or an executioner. He was a teacher. He constantly called out injustice and sin and wrongdoing, but he didn't go around whacking people with a stick, now did he? He talked to them. Imagine that he talked to them. He tried to help them understand, tried to help them to be better people. So what's the takeaway here? Well, if you're angry with your spouse, don't punish them with silence. They can't learn anything from that. Talk to them. If you're frustrated with your kids, don't scream at them or slap them. That just teaches them to do the same thing to other people. Talk to them. And if someone breaks the law, I believe that they should get a punishment that fits the crime. Rehabilitation, in many cases, is more instructive than incarceration. And, you know, sometimes a warning is better than a speeding ticket, as the case may be. For those who may have hypothetically been driving 19 miles over the speed limit, you know, hypothetically. But in all seriousness, you know, there's no need to throw your weight around. Sometimes, especially when things aren't that big a deal, sometimes it's okay to give someone the benefit of the doubt and just let it go. As I later discovered, there never was a body at the park. Not a real one. The whole thing was a training exercise for Wheaton's first responders, not a crime scene. Nothing to see here, folks. No crime to punish. But that hill where Jesus died upon a cross, that was a crime scene. One can well imagine it surrounded with bright yellow tape illuminated by the flash of cameras, the bloodstains being swapped by forensic analysts, the crowd being canvassed by officers, the body being carried away beneath a crisp white sheet. Jesus was executed as a criminal, but the real criminals were the ones who killed him, the ones who decided that he had to be punished even though he hadn't done anything wrong. They were the ones not Jesus, who crossed the line because they had a problem with him and they just couldn't let it go. And then, even then, Jesus showed them grace. Forgive them, Father, he murmured from the cross, for they don't know what they are doing. Now look, I know the Sadducees are portrayed as bumbling idiots in this scripture from the book of Acts. And yes, they overreacted when they arrested Peter and John for no good reason. But you know, there's a part of me that likes to think that these same men who accused Jesus and saw him crucified learned something from their error. That rather than following the same course with Peter and John, they realized that it was better 
to let them go before things escalated further. That like the folks at Starbucks and the Philadelphia Police Department, they'd realized they'd acted too harshly and learned from their mistake. Now there's absolutely nothing in the text to suggest such a generous interpretation of the Sadducees. But then there's a lot to be said for giving someone the benefit of the doubt and showing a little grace. Amen.